Well, I'm so glad you could join us again today. We're in the second part of this series, Where is God in All of This? And the message is entitled, Why This? Why Me? Why Now? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful that we have this time together now to gather around your word, to hear what you have to say to us. I pray, Lord, that you'd meet us where we are with exactly what we're needing today. I pray it in your son's name. Amen. You know, the Psalms are probably the most read part of the Old Testament. In fact, they're so popular that they're often packaged together with the New Testament in pocket editions of the New Testament. Why are they so popular? Well, the honest reason is because they're about people, regular people, about our joys and our struggles. They address this wide range of human emotions. In fact, if you want to dig deeper into the Psalms, join us on Wednesday night. Pastor Josh has been leading us through a series on the Psalms, just showing us one chapter after another about what God is saying to us and speaking to our needs in life. Please just set aside time Wednesday night, 7 p.m. Join us online. We'd love to have you. Well, think of the Psalms as kind of a pandemic playlist. This is the best podcast you could ever listen to that speaks to your greatest fears, your most confusing thoughts, your doubts, but also your hopes and your dreams. If you've ever asked the question, why this, why me, or why now, you'll discover that the Psalms put your deepest fears into words. In fact, that's what Andre Reznor, he's a professor at Hood Theological Seminary, it's what he wrote about the Psalms. Listen to this. The Psalms are the speech teacher for the community of faith because they help us find words when no words will do. So since we're doing this entire series around the question, where's God in all this, I knew that that necessitated that we had to spend some time in this Old Testament book of the Psalms because they help us face the feelings that we would rather push down. Now, personally, I think it's significant that in the 150 Psalms, 59 of them are called Psalms of Lament. Now, Lament Psalms are Psalms that are crying out. They're giving vent to confusion, to pain, to disillusionment. Now, they're a reminder, too, though, this is in Israel's ancient hymn book. This is what the people of God would sing when they would gather together in worship. It's important because it reminds us that Israel's worship is not just songs of joy and thanksgiving, but also songs of pain and lament. In other words, you don't have to put on a happy face to worship the God of Israel. We never have to pretend when we're in God's presence. Instead, we are free to come to God just as we are with exactly the way we feel. You know, somewhere along the line, we develop this very unbiblical notion that we can only approach God with joyful praise. You need to know that's not the message of the Bible at all. We don't come to God with just one emotion. God gave us the Psalms to teach us to bring our whole selves to God, not just the good part, not just the best part, not just the happy parts, but all the parts, the parts that include anger and disappointment and disillusionment. That's true worship. In fact, I'd go you one further. If you're not bringing your whole self to God, then you're not really worshiping, which is what my first point is all about, that worship involves bringing all of ourselves to God. The truth is life is difficult. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. So in light of that, the Psalms remind us that sometimes you just got to sing the blues. 
Now, anybody who knows me and knows me well knows that I love the blues. I'm a big blues music fan. And for the longest time here at Spring Creek, we did a lot of blues on the weekend during worship. Most people liked it because blues music, let's face it, is some of the best music on the planet. But besides that reason, the reason we did it was not just because it's cool music, the reason we did it, and I don't think people often understood this, is we played the blues because the Psalms play the blues. We played the blues because modern Christian music has forgotten that you can approach God in a minor key with a sad lyric. You can My personal belief is there's a lot of dysfunction in modern contemporary Christian music that only celebrates summer spirituality while ignoring the winter blues. It leaves people with the impression that I can only bring my best to God. But Israel's original hymn book had a balance of both praise and blues. You know, today a lot of people think that church is only a place for happy songs. But is that really what God wants? I mean, what about Muddy Waters' old song, I Bees Trouble? Listen to these lyrics. Well, if I feel tomorrow like I feel today, I'm going to pack my suitcase and make my getaway. Lord, I'm troubled, I'm all worried in my mind, and I've never been satisfied, and I just can't keep from crying. A lot of Christians would say songs like that have no place in church, but I can tell you this, Muddy Waters would find himself right at home in the book of Psalms because there are many Psalms that say just that. Thomas Dorsey, he's known as the father of gospel music. You probably heard of his song, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. It was recorded by Mahalia Jackson. It's a classic. But what you may not know is Dorsey was also a blues singer. Now, he accepted the judgment of the church of his day that taught that gospel was for church and blues was for the bar. But he always was conflicted about that. And because of that, he tended to think that gospel music was his good side and blues was his bad side. And what he would do is he would make this all-out commitment to only play gospel music, and then he said he would backslide into the blues. But he made an observation one time about gospel and blues, and I want you to hear what he said. There are moaning blues in the spirituals, and there are spirituals in the moaning blues. He's so right. Because if you look at God's original hymn book, the Psalms, that's what you find there. And that's what I'm saying is that Jewish worship ran far deeper than modern worship does. It valued lament, complaining to God, challenging God, expressing frustration with how God is acting. And if you read the book of Psalms, what you find is praise music and blues music side by side. For example, Right across the page from Psalm 23, which is, you know, the world's most favorite psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is Psalm 22. And that's a blues song that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, that's the psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. But do we ever sing that in church? No. But the Israelites did. They would sing, the Lord is my shepherd, and they would sing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They brought their praises to God along with their anger and disappointment. Today, we don't allow that. We only allow the good because we bought into this distorted idea that spirituality is always about being on top, being upbeat, and only singing happy songs. Again, one of the foremost experts on the Psalms today is an Old Testament scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann. Listen to what he had to say. 
I think that serious religious use of the Lament Psalms have been minimized because we have believed that faith does not mean to acknowledge and enter into negativity. We've thought that acknowledgement of negativity was an act of unfaith. In other words, today we'd never let ourselves ask the question, have you forsaken me? Which is a question the blues ask again and again. But God himself has given us these words in his word to use with him. Over and over again, the Psalms tell us it's okay to tell God how bad you feel. The Psalms use the blues as a normal part of life. And when we don't include the counterbalance to the happy songs, then what we do is inadvertently we condemn people who come into this place not feeling happy and think that there's something wrong with them or something inferior about their faith. Bono of the band U2, he said he began to idolize David when he was 12 years old because David was one of the world's first blues singers. In fact, the psalms that he was drawn to the most are what we would call these dark psalms, these songs of lament, of discontent and disorientation. Those are the psalms that spoke to Bono. In fact, he wrote a preference to a modern translation of the psalms, and this is what he said. That's what a whole lot of the psalms feel like to me, the blues. Many of you recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor who opposed the Nazis and died as a martyr for his faith. He also wrote a book on the Psalms called The Prayer Book of the Bible. Listen to what he had to say. The Psalms know it all. Serious illness, deep isolation from God and humanity, threats, persecution, imprisonment, and whatever conceivable peril there is on earth. They do not deny it. They do not deceive themselves with pious words about it. They allow it to stand as a severe ordeal of faith. Indeed, at times, they no longer see beyond the suffering but they complain about it all to God. What I'm saying is that some Christians and some churches are actually schooled in denial. They've been taught to deny pain for fear of looking like they don't have faith. So they hide their pain and they hide their fears and they hide their doubts behind a plastic smile and a fake praise hallelujah. But friends, worship involves bringing every aspect of ourself to God, including our failures, our doubts, and our fears. That's the key to the way Jesus worshiped. Do you know that at the Last Supper, the Passover, the time before Jesus would lay down his life for each and every one of us, they would sing the Psalms together, including the Psalms of Lament. Not just the summary Psalms where all is right with the world, but also the wintry psalms where the landscape of the soul is as barren as a cold day in January. Because Passover was remembering also the bitterness of Egyptian bondage, not just deliverance and exodus. So even Jesus himself sang the blues. You know, I believe it's good to know that other people have struggled with God. I believe it's really encouraging to read this in the pages of God's word because what it does is it gives people less excuse to withdraw from the fellowship thinking nobody there understands, nobody gets it, nobody enters into my experience when our very Bible tells us many people have felt exactly the way you feel. So we want to rediscover biblical lament. Lament is not the prayer of a happy person. Laments are the prayers of furious people. They're the prayer of frightened people and frustrated people, but most importantly, they're the prayers of faithful people. These are the prayers of people who know what it means to be completely honest with God.
Philip Yancey, he called the Psalms of Lament primal scream praying. Eugene Peterson, who did the Message Bible, he called them cut-to-the-bone prayers. These are the kind of prayers that are not afraid to tell it like it is and tell God we're not all that pleased with what's happening to us. We don't do anything other than sharing truly how we feel. And here's the best part of all. God is not put off by it. Instead, he actually welcomes it. So God wants us to level with him, to tell us exactly where we are, what we're feeling and how we're feeling hurt. We don't have to hold back our deepest, truest feelings from God or wait until we scrub our souls clean in order to lay that at his feet. Let me ask you something. With whom would you vocalize your deepest fears or your most irrational anger? Would you share that with a boss who might be able to fire you or in a relationship that might easily throw you away because they don't understand? No. You save your deepest heart cries for someone you deeply and wildly trust. To cry out to God and allow your messy feelings to just spew out is a far greater indicator of trust than the person who sits in a worship service singing a song about how much they trust God because that feeling, trusting God with our most vulnerable feelings, is the truest act of trust. Listen to this. The Psalms of Lament demonstrate just how deeply our relationship with the Father really is. After all, we don't communicate our grief and mourning to strangers. We save that for those we truly know and love. So nothing is out of bounds when it comes to God. There's nothing inappropriate. Everything truly belongs in this conversation of the heart. Henry Nouwen powerfully said, we can do real harm to ourselves when we approach God selectively and reveal to him only those parts of ourselves that we think we can handle or that he can handle. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, you know, I really can't pray what I'm really thinking and really feeling right now because God wouldn't accept that? What I'm telling you is the opposite. You need to confess your anger to God because, first of all, he already knows. And announcing your emotions, what you're doing is you're claiming ownership over your feelings. You're giving yourself permission to feel them, and more importantly, you're letting them play out where that they can be resolved. If you confess your anger to God, God can help you with your anger. If you stuff your anger down, you get to hold on to it because God can't do anything with feelings that we won't trust him with. Now, although you probably don't remember it, the very first sound that you ever uttered when you left the warm, protected confines of your mother's womb was a lament. You cried when you entered this cold, bright, painful world, you cried. Or as Michael Card said it, no one needed to teach you how to lament. So tears and crying mark our entrance into the world, and tears and crying also mark our exit from this world as family and friends gather around remembering us. Now there's a message in that, isn't there? To live and to die is to lament, because pain is inevitable in life. Loss is inevitable in life. You will suffer as will your family, as will your friends, as will your city, your nation, and the world. What are you going to do with it? Well, lament is God's answer to a broken world. But there's something else you need to know. To lament is an act of faith. 
This is not an act of faithlessness. It's actually the opposite. Lament is an act of faith and to resist the temptation to stop talking to God because we're angry or disillusioned with him. Now, if you've ever known a couple that has serious marriage problems, you know that one of the surest signs of a broken, hopeless marriage is that the couple has stopped talking to one another. You might recognize the name John Gottman. He's one of the nation's leading experts on marriage. And he talks a lot about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four characteristics of marriages that are really going in the wrong direction. And the fourth horseman he calls stonewalling, which is exactly the way it sounds. It's about shutting down. It's about not talking. He says that fighting and anger are not predictors of divorce. They really aren't. Because fighting and anger occur in both dysfunctional marriages and in very healthy marriages. It's not fighting and anger that doom a marriage. Instead, it's the choosing to withdraw from the fight. That's what stonewalling is. It's withdrawing from the fight. It's walking away. Now, a lot of counselors, they don't like to work with couples that are in white-hot anger. But frankly, those couples are a lot easier to work with because the anger is indicative that they still care. They wouldn't be so angry if they didn't care. The most difficult type of couple to work with is a couple that's already zeroed out on affection. They're not talking to one another because there the fire has gone out. Well, the same thing's true about our relationship with God. To be angry with God, to tell him what you really think and what you really feel, those are good signs. The people that I'm concerned about most are the people who've stopped talking to God, who've stopped praying. Now, a lot of you who stopped talking to God, it's because you didn't think you could tell him what you were really feeling. That was a mistake. Tell him what you feel. He welcomes it. He can handle it. William Gaultier is a uh, psychologist, and he is a spiritual director. He said this, among Christians I work with in therapy, it's been my experience that those who are willing to honestly wrestle with God by confronting, questioning, even complaining to him about the pain and injustice they experience are the ones who develop the most intimate relationship with him. You'll never feel close to God if you don't feel the freedom to share with him your pain, your anger, your disappointment, your fear, because you're sandbagging your emotions in a relationship that requires complete vulnerability. The problem is not on God's end. The emotional dishonesty is what is dooming the relationship. So that leads me to the second half of the marriage, or the message here, which is all about Psalm 77, which is what I call learning to share your worst with God. That's my question. Can you share your worst with God? You know, a lot of us grew up maybe in church, and and we were told to wear our best clothes to Sunday worship. In fact, it was called your Sunday best. And I know the idea behind that, the intended lesson was we should always share our best with God. I get that. But I think there was an unintended lesson that sometimes came through in that, and that is a lesson that I'm not free to share my worst with God. You see, God wants us to share our worst with God. Thomas Merton made the following observation. The Psalms are a part of the revealed word of God, words which God himself has indicated to be those he likes to hear from us. So will we trust God with our most irrational thoughts and troubling emotions? When we do that, we make him Lord, not just of our good parts, but our bad parts as well. He becomes Lord of all. And it's only until we share with him everything that's in our heart that he truly is Lord of all. Besides, I'll tell you this right up front, God, a God that only likes happy prayers is not a God at all. 
I mean, our God allows us to address him, to challenge him when we pray. He invites us to question him, to express our doubts about his character, to actually give vent to our rage. Imagine that. He encourages us to worship him in our questions, in our doubts, in our anger. God wants us to get it all out in the open. So the first thing we're taught in this psalm is simply this, the courage to be real. Today, I want to introduce you to someone who dared to ask really tough questions of God. His name is Asaph. Now, he's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. The guy's not a cynic. He's a very spiritual man. In fact, he's Israel's chief worship leader. So this is someone who's intimately familiar with the word of God, practices it, and is teaching other people those principles in song. Twelve of the 150 psalms were written by Asaph. Now, one in particular, Psalm 77, is a prayer of anguish and confusion. It's a psalm of lament. Asaph is struggling. Listen to what he prays. I found myself in trouble and went looking for my Lord. My life was an open wound that wouldn't heal. When friends said everything will turn out all right, I didn't believe a word they said. Or how about this in verse 4 of chapter 77? You don't let me sleep. He's saying this to God. You don't let me sleep. I'm too distressed even to pray. Or how about this? Just my luck, I said. The high, the high God goes out of business just the moment I need him. Asaph has come to believe that maybe God stopped taking his calls. Now, if you don't get anything else I say today, get this. It's okay to question. God invites us to lay our struggles and frazzled emotions at his feet. God wants the real you, not the pretend you, because communication is the foundation of all relationships. You say, but wait a second here. We're talking about God, the creator of us all. Doesn't he deserve a little respect? Well, absolutely. But which is more respectful, to tell someone that you're angry with them or to slam the door and go out of the house? You see, I think it's more disrespectful to stop talking. I think it's more disrespectful to walk away from the conversation. And when we stop talking to God, it's like storming out of the house because you've walked away from the relationship. Issues can never be resolved when we run away from them. You can't deepen your relationship with God when you bottle up what you really feel. But confessing it, communicating about it, allows you to do something healthy with it. Our emotions are always based on limited perceptions. We don't always understand what God is doing, but still we're feeling the feelings that we feel, and we have to do something about those feelings. It's best to express them honestly. Now, do you ever get mad at the people you love? Well, of course you do. So why would your relationship with God ever be different? You say, but God doesn't do anything to make me mad. Well, I got news for you. Neither does your spouse. You make you mad. Because between whatever they said and did and your anger over here is your interpretation of the event. And it's your interpretation of the event that makes you angry. In the same way, how you're interpreting your circumstances right now may be making you angry at God. Now, I love Brenda. I really do. But sometimes I get mad at Brenda. And when that happens, we have to talk about our feelings to keep the lines of communication open, to keep the relationship running smoothly. I have to do the same thing with God. When I sandbag my feelings, I am sowing the seeds of destruction in that relationship. It's better to get it out in the open as soon as possible because that way it won't strangle the life in the relationship. Besides, if you feel one thing and then you pray something else, 
what that tells me is your God is too small. Evidently, the God you're praying to is totally unaware of your real heart. You can fool him by saying words you don't mean. Your God would much rather you pray something you don't mean than pray something that's real but messy. Let me remind you of something. When you confess your anger to God, he already knows about it. The reason we confess it, the problem is we don't know about it. By announcing it and speaking it, you're giving yourself permission to feel it. You know, I carry a lot of scars from the time I was a Christian when I first became a Christian. But 27 years ago, when Brenda and I were in the worst part of our marriage turmoil, I can tell you that one of the things that God began to heal was the way I prayed. I used to pray such plastic, pretentious, what seemed to be very theologically correct prayers, but had nothing to do with what was really going on in my heart. And as I began to pray and pour out to God, my disappointment, my fear, my my confusion, my misinterpretation of everything that was happening, going on around me, as I began to do that, I began to experience God as I never had before. I never feel a need anymore to protect God from my emotions. Why? Because he already knows me and he and he loves me. His settled disposition toward me is love. I have no fear in bringing that honest self to him because it's only when I began to bring my honest self to God that I became convinced that he's truly fond of me because he became Lord of all my parts, not just the best parts. Something else, we find our healing by expressing sadness and anger in community. Remember, the Psalms were sung together with others, in the company of other people of God, acknowledging that sometimes life sucks and we're not really sure what God is doing about that. You know something? It's like the blues. When you sing the blues, you feel better. I mean, this is when I, when I was in my recovery, when Brenda and I were in the heat of our battle 27 years ago, that's when I began to discover the blues and I fell in love with them because what they did is they gave words to my pain. I didn't have to be the one singing it. I just needed to hear somebody else acknowledge that sometimes life is hard and I entered into that experience and it became very cathartic for me, a way or an avenue of getting those things out of my heart and out into the open where I could deal with them. You know, the truth is this, bridges are built when you're in the company of other people who are honestly confessing their struggles. Ask anybody in 12-step recovery, and they'll tell you what I'm saying is absolutely true. When you're in a room full of people who are being honest about themselves, about their fears, about their disappointments, about the ways that they have failed in life, you will find your healing in that group because people are giving words to the things you've never been able to speak. So there's an old James Taylor song that says this, everybody has the blues, everybody gets to sit and cry, Everybody gets to wonder why. Everybody gets to watch the sky turn gray. Bottom line, the church is not a community of people who've been able to avoid the blues. We're a community of people who face the blues together. We're a community of people that sings the blues right alongside the songs of praise because they're just two sides of one relationship with God. You see, we believe that we sing to a Jesus who knows all about our troubles. And this same Jesus knows about the absence of God. This same Jesus is a Jesus who knows about pain and rejection. This same Jesus is the one who felt completely abandoned and has suffered. So we pour our cares onto him because we know he cares for us.
A second thing that Asaph teaches us is to face the right direction. He said, and I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then I recall all that you have done, O Lord. Even in his complaint, he's still facing toward God. He's crying out in desperation for sure, but he's crying out to God. It's the same thing Jesus does in the New Testament. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Asaph and Jesus both experienced distress and both cried to God. They're facing the right direction to be heard. Listen to this quote. It's from an anonymous source. Every emotion is a theological statement. Emotions reveal subconscious movements toward God or movements away from him. You and I are constantly moving in our relationship with God. Nobody remains static. Nobody just stays where they are. Either I'm moving toward him or I'm moving away from him. Asaph is showing us here how to trust God when all the evidence suggests that he's walked off the job. You see, this is what I was talking about earlier, about the person we have a choice about either shutting down, closing off, stopping talking, stopping praying to God, or to bring ourselves fully to God, giving ourselves permission to feel whatever it is we're feeling, but to lay it all authentically before God. Let me tell you from the heart, God would rather you pray an honest, messy prayer than a pretentious, theologically correct prayer any day of the week. A third thing the psalm teaches us is to magnify God to diminish your problems. So get this, in the first six verses of this chapter, there are 19 references to me, myself, and I. I mean, in other words, it's all about Asaph. And as he begins to turn inward and he gets wrapped up in self-pity, what you discover is this total focus on me makes him completely and abjectly miserable. He says, I cried out, I sought, I stretched, I would not be comforted. As long as he remained focused on himself, God seemed missing. Have you ever noticed that the longer you engage in a pity party, the more distant God seems to be? Not because God moves or abandoned, it's for this reason. The very act of sinking into ourselves makes us put distance between ourselves and God. But there's something else that happens in this psalm. Asaph shifts from I to you. He stops thinking about himself, and he starts thinking about God. He says, you perform miracles. You display your power. You redeem your people. Listen to this, verses 16 and 18. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the sky. The earth trembled and quaked. There's not a single eye my or me in any of those verses. Asaph is thinking about God and everything he's done. You know, one time when I was in college, this was my sophomore year, my parents were going through a divorce. I'd gone through a horrible breakup with my girlfriend, and I was just kind of having this royal pity party. I was totally depressed. I felt miserable. I was totally unmotivated. So I made an appointment with one of my favorite professors who was also known to be a really good counselor. His name was Mr. Fourlines. And I went to see Mr. Four Lines, and I just kind of poured out my junk, you know, just laid it all out before him. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, Keith, you've developed, and I'll never forget this, he said, you've developed a real incoming personality instead of an outgoing personality. You're totally focused on yourself, and because of that, you've become depressed. And then he asked me this question, he said, 
have you even looked up to see the color of the leaves? And I was perturbed by that question. I said, yes. And then we just kind of went on. Well, after this session, I walk out of the academic building where his office was. I look up into the trees, and there's not a leaf on the tree. It's the middle of winter. But I was so convinced I'd been seeing the leaves before that time. So I just had this really good laugh, but this amazing realization that Mr. Fourlines was absolutely right. There's something about getting our focus on ourselves that feeds and fuels our depression and despair. Shifting our focus outward onto others and upward onto God affects us. That's what worship is. It's about getting the focus off ourselves. So in worship, I first come with whatever I'm feeling. I've got to get that out. I've got to get that in the open. But then I change my focus and I put it on God. In that way, worship recalibrates the soul. It resets our vision. It reorients us from being inward to being outward. You need to understand that worship is not the natural instinct of the depressed person. We want to instead pull the covers in over our head, focus exclusively on ourselves, and forget about God and everybody else. Asaph willed himself to worship. It was the best thing he could do. Now, there's a pastor. Her name is Catherine Green McCrae. And she's dealt with major depression in her life, wrote a book about mental illness. Her book is called Darkness is My Only Companion. And what she described in that book is her journey toward or through 10 years of extreme depression, including bipolar disorder, and how gathering together with the church helped her so much. Listen to this. It is so important to worship in community, to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Sometimes you literally cannot make it on your own, and you need to borrow from the faith of those around you. Companionship in the Lord Jesus is powerful. This is why we come together to sing the songs we sing, to worship together, because sometimes I need the faith that my brothers and sisters have. The final principle may be one of the most important principles of all, and that is to engage in the spiritual discipline of remembering. Now, when we use the word remember, we mean to recall or to bring to mind the notion of an event. We think, oh, you know, I just remembered I have a doctor's appointment today. But biblically, to remember is much deeper than that. Remembering is not just about recall. To a Jewish person, the Jewish concept of remembering, it's not a passive event. It's actually active. To remember something means to relive it or to re-experience it. So to Jewish people, it means to bring the past reality into my present reality, to re-experience it again in this moment, to bring the lessons I've learned in my past into the present so they aid me in this time. So when the Bible encourages us to remember what God has done, it's not merely saying recall it or think about it or get nostalgic. What it's saying is relive it in the present moment. Think about what was true and right and real about that, and it's meant to be experienced right now in your present moment. So in the Old Testament, the people remembered over and over again this event of Passover, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And you might recall that every year when they celebrated this festival, they would remember to the point of acting it out again and again. They ate the meal in haste, Surrounded by the sights, the sounds, the smell of the original Passover, they sang songs of joy and sadness. They recreated the event symbolically. Why? Because Passover is not just a mental exercise. It was important to God for his people to re-experience it every single year. 
And that's exactly where Asaph goes in his mind. He remembers, by your strong arm, you redeemed your people. When the Red Sea saw you, O God, its waters looked and trembled. The sea quaked to its very depths. The clouds poured down rain. The thunder rumbled in the sky. Your arrows of lightning flashed. Your thunder roared from the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep and Moses and Aaron as their shepherd. So in the second half of this psalm, Asaph finds a solution to his hurt and his anger against God. He remembers God's ways in the Exodus. He says, I'm going to force my mind out of this dungeon and back to the stories of what God has done. I'm going to remember who God is, not just who he was. That this is not just the way God worked once upon a time, but this is the way God is working in my present situation. I'm going to enter into God's redemptive ways and trust that he's at work even when I can't see it. Now you realize that communion, the Lord's Supper, that's based on the Passover meal, is supposed to be experienced in this same way. To experience once again Christ in our Midst, to remember, not just recall, not just get nostalgic, not just think about the facts and what occurred then, but instead to remember his suffering, his broken body, his blood that was spilt. We experience it anew because every day we need the covering of the blood of our Savior. It means to retach ourselves to God so we remember Christ. So where does that leave us? Well, some of you, you just needed permission today, permission to be where you are, to feel what you feel and know that God welcomes you in all your fragile, fragile emotions, just being who you are, where you are, pouring it out to him. There's others of you that I have to say, what's holding you back spiritually is this distorted thinking that somehow you can only bring your happiest thoughts and your most joyful praise to God. And what that's done is it's got half of your life in God And this half of you that is confused, that gets angry, that sometimes doesn't know where to turn, that part has not been brought under the lordship of Jesus because you're not bringing your whole authentic self to God. And you need to start doing that. There's others of you, a good number of you, that are kind of like where I was back in college. You've developed a real incoming personality. Everything gets so focused on yourself. And I got to tell you, that's a small little world And it's a world that will swirl down to the deepest depression and the deepest despair. One of the best things we learn in this psalm is that Asaph is able to get his eyes off of himself and up onto God, where that God could do something with all of those questions in his life. And then for us right now, in this time of COVID, you know what we need to do? We need to remember not what God was, but who God is. This God that from cover to cover in the Bible takes the worst that happens to his people and somehow always works it to their benefit. That God is still alive and well, and he's working in a day and age of COVID. He's working in your life right now. Maybe you're out of work. Maybe you lost your business. Maybe you even lost a loved one along the way. It could be right now that you're just not even sure about what the future holds, and you're full of fear. And I just got to tell you from the heart, this God that loves you like no other is at work even when you can't see him. So we remember, we go back to the stories of the Bible because this is not 
not just what God was, it's who he is today. And we re-experience that reality right now to know that my God is my champion and that he's actively working to redeem and take what is bad, to take what is hurtful, to take what is unjust, and to work it all out for the benefit of me and the people of God. So I pray that today we will take some time to remember who God is. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that we have this time together to look honestly at your word, to see what it has to say to us about our lives and about what we're going through. I thank you, God, that in the midst of the world where people are asking, where are you, God, and what are you doing? Why this? Why me? Why now? That in the midst of that, God, we have perfect examples in the Bible of people who brought those very questions to you. And God, far from turning away, you lean into those who bring their pain, their authentic emotions, their deepest confusion, their deepest doubts, and lay them at your feet. As we bring those things to you, they're able to play out. You're able to heal them. You're able to redirect us, God. But Lord, what we need not do ever is hold them inside. I pray for anybody, God, who's who's bought into this notion that somehow when I worship you, I only bring praise and thanksgiving. That God, it's real worship when I trust you authentically with who I am and where I am in the moment. That says I trust you implicitly. So God, help us to worship you even in the difficult times, to not run away from those feelings and more importantly, not run away from you. God, I pray for your people who are in the midst of some real difficult circumstances right now. There's all kinds of pain and suffering that's going on in our world, not just in our families and not just in our community, but literally all around the world. And I pray, Lord, that as your people, that we would be these champions of hope because we remember. We remember and we bring the past reality into this present moment, knowing that our God never fails, knowing that our God is always actively working to redeem the bad, the evil, the injustice, to work it out to the good and for our growth. So Lord, I pray that even when we can't see your footprints, even when we can't see your handiwork, may we remember, Lord, who you are and that you never change. We thank you, Lord, for being with us during this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So please don't rush away right now. We've got a time right after the message where some of our folks come together, have some discussion questions. You can use us as a time with your family or in your small group. God bless you. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hey everyone, that was an awesome message from Pastor Keith. We wanna invite you guys to be a part of this discussion by writing your comments in the comment section below. Before I kick it over to Josh, I just wanna remind you guys that next Sunday, we're gonna have our digital lobby before service starting at 945, and you can find the link to that Zoom call in the comments. Josh, you wanna take it from here? Thank you, Patrick. Such a great week as we continue to learn where is God in all of this. And I love the personal aspect that Keith brought this week. But for us to discuss, why me? Why now? Where is God in all of this? I am a big fan of the Psalms. As most mm -hmm. people with Spring Creek know that we've been discussing it for six or so weeks uh, since we've been sheltering in place. I think the Psalms have so much to offer for us. So I wanted to throw it over to you guys and and first of all, thanks for being here. But secondly, what do you guys like about the Psalms? What draws you to the Psalms or your experience with them? I think for me, it's a lot of times whenever I'm going through very a lot of frustration, you, when you go to the Psalms, you see that you can relate. 
because so many of the verses talk about, you know, hey, God, where are you? Or God, help me. You're always crying out to God. And I'm thinking, hey, if they can cry out to God, I can cry out to God. You know, it makes it real for me. Right. Yeah, that's good. You know, it's an interesting question because to me, it's like, how do you relate to all the colors? <laughs> um, some I really like. Some I maybe don't relate to as much, but I think the Psalms to me uh, reminds me of uh, of moments that are encapsulated in very short times. You know, often if you think of a memory, you only think of a very small specific part of that memory when there was a lot going on around it. And I think it's the same, same thing with the Psalms, that when you read a Psalm, you can see a specific moment in somebody's life, whether it be David or one of the other authors, and realize this is exactly how they were feeling and what they were thinking, what they were sensing. And what Keith said in the message today is exactly what it reminds me of, that it gives us permission to feel those exact same things. Um, I can read Psalms 139 and remember mm. a specific moment in my life where it gave me permission to feel something. Mm. Remember Psalms 20, where I can go back to a specific moment in my life and it gave me permission to feel exactly what was going on in those pages. Yeah, the Psalms are an empathy green light. Go ahead mm -hmm. and join me in this. And much like music, we were just talking about it a little bit earlier, some of my musical <laughs> opinions are uh, <laughs> wrong, apparently, but clearly, we all relate to music differently, and we have those memories, like this song makes me think of this place, or this band draws me to this place. The Psalms are poems and songs, and so mm -hmm. we get to see inside of the emotional state of the author. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives us such a great insight into who God is because the Psalms vary in length, in rhythm, in experience, but the consistent fact throughout the Psalms is God's character and you get to see God consistently showing up or people consistently wrestling with God, uh, still knowing he is who he is. And so we dive into Psalms of lament and there mm -hmm. are... There's corporate psalms of lament and there's individual psalms of lament where it's, we are lamenting, we are uh, bemoaning, we are <laughs> complaining isn't the right word, but, but griping about something, upset about something. As we enter into the psalms of lament, today's psalm, Psalm 77, gives us an idea of this is what it looks like to wrestle with God, to feel mm -hmm. doubt, to feel anger. And I think we all lament different things. Um, we, we see it on social media a lot. But when you guys think about lamenting, what does that look like for you individually? And, and how, how does that play out? What are things you lament and how do you do it? For me, I, when I get angry with God or I'm in that moment, I tend to withdraw and just into myself because I'm mad in my own self and I want to be mad and I want to have my time for my pity party. And so I don't immediately run to God because I feel... Um, well, if I go to him, it's going to draw me closer to him and I'm going to have to deal with it. So for, for me, it's like I step back and I'm mad, I'm in a pity party, but I know that I want him, but he's further away. So it draws me closer. It brings us back to a point to where we're connecting and I feel like, hey, I can walk this. He understands it. He's, that's why this is there for me. And it, it draws me closer and it helps rebuild that trust that I feel like it kind of breaks because now I'm not willing to give to you, God. You can have all of me, but this part. And I'm going to be mad. But but when I do go and I deal with it and I cry out to him, it's like this peacefulness that happens and you're going, where did this come from? And why did I wait so long? Because I know it's right there, 
but it just, there's something about ourself that does that. And I, it just, it connects that brokenness mm. and it brings us back into community. That's good. You know, I, I feel like this is probably the one message that I have the least personal experience to talk about <laughs> because I'm an Enneagram seven and sevens love running away from pain mm-hmm. by keeping themselves busy. And, uh, it reminds, I remember there's a song called car radio by 21 pilots about this guy who gets his car radio stolen and he just has to sit there in his car in silence. All these thoughts just fill his brain of anger and sadness that he never had to deal with because he had a car radio. And I've realized that if I start just feeling like life is building around me and crushing me, I often don't know why, Mm because I've run away from it too many times. Mm -hmm. And so it's often when I will turn off my car radio and just be driving mm-hmm. that I'll feel the lament start rising. And it's then that I have some of the most honest conversations with God. And it's just me alone in my car without any car radio. Mm-hmm. And, and that honesty really does give us that sense of peace. Mm-hmm. We're finally able to say it out loud. We're, we're admitting what God already knows about us. We're just admitting it to ourselves. And I think a lot of lament is that. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm going to say this out loud. And I need to, I need to clear the air. And God's just, I have to imagine, this is just a summary. I got, God's just waiting for us to do that and saying, let's say it out loud, admit it, own it, so that we can go past it. Mm -hmm. And that's what lamenting allows us to do. Corporately, as we do on social media or individually, as we drive around yelling at ourselves, sorting (laughs) through an argument we had with our spouse or our boss, or, oh, I should have said this, I should have done that. And God is right there with us, joining Mm -hmm. us in that. And in Psalm 77, Asaph demonstrates for us what it looks like to respond to a lament through remembrance, this idea that I'm going to remember God is faithful. I'm going to build up all of this Mm -hmm. energy against like, oh, doubt this, anger this, frustration that, but God is faithful. Mm -hmm. And we all have those same practices. What what are your remembering practices? What do you do to remember God in those times? I I think it's just... The things that I've experienced already, like you said, it's there for you. And the things you remember, it comes back. Mm. It comes back and you rem- and you remember what happens. Um, and for me, talk about the practices and how you remember. I think as a kid growing up, I was told not to get mad with God, not to tell God I was mad. That, you know, you don't want to get, tell God you're mad. And and I was always afraid to go to him with stuff. And And I think that was part of a lot of my problem that I've got to keep all this internal. I can't show my anger. And I always thought God was going to strike me down. I was that, and so it was a weird relationship. So I think as I grew and I got older, I realized that's, that's not how it's designed. We're designed for community and, and to be together and he loves us. And, and I think that's so important uh, with our kids and with our students. And, you know, my kids are older now, but allow them to be able to walk through that lament with them, walk through that with them. How, what does it look like? You know, you know, I'm, I'm mad at you or I'm frustrated. What is that? And let's talk about that. And, and, you know, if they can even use their hand, I'm, this is, I'm mad at me. And the number one is God, you help me, you know, cause you're pointing up. And then, 
I think about the, the middle finger, Chital finger, and it's all the <laughs> stuff that's happening because it's it's overwhelming. It's taken over your whole life. Let's put it that way. Oh, that's what's, all right. Yes. And then, you know, like your wing finger, it reminds you of this is the this is how I'm feeling. Why this is why it's not fair, because it's your weakest finger. So how do you think about that? If, if you're so weak, and then that pinky finger, like the whole pinky promise of your kids, like the, God's promises. He promises to be there with us. So how do we do that with our kids and our and our family and the folks that we love to walk that through with them and it teach them what we've learned? That's good. Uh, I have a dear friend named Matthew who has 10 kids. <laughs> I love going over to dinner at his house because they have a wall with all these little tiny trinkets on it. And every single dinner, they pull one of these trinkets off and it, every single one of them reminds them of a story of something God's done for them or their family. So oh, you have wow. no clue what they are, but often if you're a guest, you get to pick out it, which one cool. it is. So the toilet, the little tiny toy toilet <laughs> is the time that their septic tank broke and okay. God miraculously provided money for them to fix it. Or there's a little mm-hmm. tiny car and the time that somebody donated a van for them. And so I think that if there's a physical representation mm-hmm. you can constantly see, um, it reminds you that one moment by itself can mean a lot. But when you start seeing all the moments build mm-hmm. up, you realize God's never stopped. Yes. Yeah. He's continuing to work. And he's not only working your life, but when you go over to somebody else's house, and you see the things that they're that God's been able to do in their life. You remind them that he's not just focused on you. He's focused on mm-hmm. others. And he's focused on a community that surrounds you. Yeah, that's solid. Mm-hmm. And I think having physical reminders keeps them present in front of you. Just mm-hmm. like any discipline we try to build, a discipline of remembering is something we have to be intentional about. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema is all about remember yeah. mm-hmm. that the Lord is one, that the Lord has done these things for us. So we should talk about them whenever we're walking and sitting mm-hmm. and standing and laying and talk about them with our children. And so I think talking about lament gives us a chance to lament and then remember. And that's what Asaph did. That's what Jesus modeled for us. That's what the disciples saw is we go through hard times, we voice them, and then we remember, but God, you are faithful. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so mad we're going through this again. Mm-hmm. But actually, last time it turned out all right. Yeah, <laughs> Why right. can't I remember that quicker? Why can't I wrestle with that easier? Yeah. But I think it's so cool to go through this as a community as we interact with people. And I know we're going to have different comments on this and different life experiences coming mm-hmm. into this conversation of people saying, this helps me remember. Or mm-hmm. I've never thought about remembering just let me lament. Uh, and I think letting our kids lament, saying, yeah, we can be mad for a second. Mm-hmm. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to wrestle. So let's lament, but let's remember who we're serving. Let's mm-hmm. remember who provides. Let rem- let's remember who's with us in the storm. And that's where we get to move forward from this. Well, where is God in all of this? Well, let's ask that question, but also remember that he's there. So, Tammy, Patrick, thank you guys so much for joining this conversation. I'm excited to see what conversations stem from this and how people respond. But uh, And to move forward into next week as we continue the conversation. Good. Thanks.